Welcome back to another episode of the Inside Scoop, a podcast on the San Marcos Scoop Podcast Network and a production of Newstreams Media, recapping some of the biggest headlines and biggest stories here in San Marcos, Texas, covering our local government. Today, we have a busy agenda and a busy week. As y'all know, this show is co-hosted by myself, XR Arguello, the content creator and the producer of the San Marcos Scoop, and of course, Mr. Scott Gregson, local business owner, entrepreneur, and founder of Newstreams Media. Scott, happy Sunday. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. Another warm day in paradise. Yeah, but we're both a little sick. Yeah, well, it's just, I don't know, it's allergies or something in the air that's yeah. uh, gotten my throat a little bit, but I was... I thought I was going to have laryngitis, which, I, as I said to you earlier, was God, would be God's gift to my friends. If that, so. <laughs> yeah, so they can, so you can shut up for a yep, little bit. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, Liberty's losing her voice at home. My sister got sick, and it got me sick last week. And uh, I thought I was getting better, but it kind of came back. I don't know, something's going around. Well, it'll it go it'll go around somewhere else after this. So yeah, yeah, so it'll happen. All right. Well, before we get into the, to the agenda, excuse me, we have a few cans in the box: parking, Guadalupe housing project, and of course, Lindsay Hill. Uh, some of the bigger topics that will be coming around at some point in the near future here in the city, although we don't know when, um, those are just things to look out for. Um, I'm still really curious about Lindsay Hill. I think that one needs to be addressed first. Well, and, and the other part of that is just that has to do as part of the overall housing issue. I mean, we've had the housing assessment done. We've had the, um, what is it, SMTX for All, the yeah. housing uh, group that, that has worked diligently for almost a year in the process. I know council took about a 40-minute 40, 40 workshop, but this group worked for an entire year in the process of getting and doing the deep dive that just like um, we created the uh, Citizen Utility Advisory Board for, because of the complications and complexities of the subject, it needs a deeper dive than council has the time on the dives to do, and that's what this group did. And so I was very pleased. I think they're going to be coming out with some, some great outcomes that mirror, in my mind, <coughs> what... Um, or is being done across the country to deal with uh, density, um, urbanization, all those types of things. And uh, I, I think, um, you know, if it's, if it's done right, the usual suspects won't be happy about it. But that's the, that's the outcome of that. So those are, those are some things that are coming up uh, that are still out there that are big, big things in our city. Yeah, and uh, the Guadalupe Housing Project is, is another one of those big things. Uh, like we said, I guess we're just waiting right now for the developer to come back and see if he's going to change, if they are going to change their well, plans or not. Well, at, at least in the council meeting, they indicated their willingness to work with the council to try to come to right. uh, some some you know compromised um, outcomes. Yeah. But at the same time, I think um, it, it required, based upon the planning and zoning vote, it requires a six-plus vote at council to pass. Yes. And um, – <clears throat> Uh, even though uh, Councilmember Gonzalez, Saul Gonzalez, said that uh, you know he he wanted them he, if they would be really good neighbors if they build affordable housing, he voted against it. So they got one strike against them; they can't get any more. Yeah, to get it passed. Unless this developer is working with the city and changing well, the plans well, we'll and see. making it happen. Well, yeah, we'll see. If, even if they work with the city, there's been people that worked with the city and gotten staff recommendation before. And they've gotten the boot from either planning and zoning or council. Mm, right. Yeah. No, we have seen that in the past with a variety of issues. All right. That's it for Kansas. As far as the agenda for today, we're going to be talking about the historic uh, commission meeting. A lot of a lot going on with historic properties and uh, uh, kind of future regulations and, and, and just the way we look at historic properties in the city is going to be the bulk of this agenda. But we're also going to be talking about some campaigns coming up now. 2020 is around the corner. Uh, we also have some elections in 2019. This is 2019. This is we have we have elections. It's like a heartbeat. We yeah, have elections yeah, yeah. every year in San Marcos, mm -hmm, off yeah. your elections and on your elections. Right. So we have some uh, mm. some vacancies coming up on the city council, which means that'll have to be filled. Um, it's going to be a really interesting campaign season. I think 2019 will be a really great lead up. Uh, to one of the most anticipated elections in American history, which will be 2020. It has to be. Well, it, it's going to, you know, it's it's always fun in San Marcos. Uh, yes, yeah, always fun. So we'll talk about campaigns and then we'll finish off with the candlelight vigil that happened uh, on Friday night at the courthouse here on San Antonio Street, the historic courthouse. Um, a little bit of a, I don't know if I want to call it a protest, but a, a demonstration, a call to action, a prayer session. And candlelight for what's going on. At a, the, a notice of frustration. Yes, for what's going on at the detention centers across the state and across the country. So we'll end off with that. So okay, perfect. First on the list, historic commission meeting. Uh, we're going to be talking about my historic SMTX, the, the city's historic resource survey. No public hearing, um, nor affected property owner notification. Well, there. there there was there was a. For that particular item, there were a couple of public hearings at the uh, last July the 11th mm. uh, Planning um, Historic Preservation Commission, the HPC, right? Not, not not otherwise the HDC, the HPC. HPC, yes. 
But uh, there were a couple of items that did have required public hearings. These were action items um, that were considered for approval or discussion with direction to staff and didn't have public hearings. So if you didn't speak during public comment, then you didn't have an opportunity to provide public comment on mm. these issues other than for okay. an opportunity to write a letter. That's And I haven't looked back at the tape. I've, I've filed a Freedom of Information Act request for uh, for the copy of the, <clears throat> the audio and the tape if it exists or if it's posted on the city's website, I'll get it. But I have not had a, an outcome of that FOIA request at this point in time. Mm. But uh, the um, the idea here is that they've, the staff had recommended after you know a year or so of work for this – uh, historic SMTX was of a review of, in two phases, over a thousand properties were surveyed. There was another, what was re- described as a windshield drive-by of other properties. But they looked at a four, about a thousand properties were surveyed. Four hundred of them were determined to be uh, medium to high priority as historic structures. That's a lot. That's a lot of structures. No, and that's 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 a whole different element to this process. And I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But there were two phases. But they're all done on the west side of I-35, so there was nothing done on the east side of I-35. So at the, at the meeting that was discussed, that was discussed for um, at the council, their emergency meeting uh, by council to to, t- to talk about the demolition permit regulation, which we'll get to in a minute as well. Uh, it was it was questioned. Why, you know, was there nothing historic on the east side of 35? Mm. As there might have been, was it, or was there a motivation involved? And, and I think. That's my theory, that there was a motivation involved. Well, are there historic properties on the east side of 35? Yeah, there are older properties over there, sure. Mm. Or there's a property. Well, Capes Capes Dam is is an older property on the east side of 35. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, Capes Dam is on the east side. And the the mill race. So, yes, that part of San Marcos was developed a long time ago uh, in its its origins. So, yeah, there there would be most likely things over there. And I'm not familiar with them per se, but I think there are some mills and things like that that were over there that are still – the remnants of those are still there. So, anyway, there was – it was – I think the description was it was sort of an elitist approach to historic preservation to think that only the valuable properties were on the the west side of 35. But – excuse me. Um, my big issue is with, with respect to the 400 plus properties that are in in the in the headlights of uh, of, of council and the historic preservation commission to create regulations on or about because uh, I own a couple of those properties, several mm. of them. There's been no written notification <clears throat> to anybody about this. Now, obviously, you post an agenda; it's public. You post it on the city's website; it's public. Yeah, I get it. But, you know, when you have a zoning case, not only the property owner knows, 400 feet from the edges of the property all the way around it, all the property owners around it know. So it seems to me that I I know Mary Houston was pushing this process, you know, give it to the HPC, let them do it. Well, council's off for the month and HPC goes out and does it. There's no public notification in the process. And um, they're coming back because Mary Houston said, I want to have a... Uh, and I'll, I'll paraphrase, a full-throated review and analysis of this so we have something substantive to vote on when we come back so we can put this in place. And those four – so when I think of those 400-plus properties too, I'm also thinking of um, – when you look at adding 400-plus properties uh, to be medium to high priority as historic structures, what do those property owners think of that? Because as soon as you add those kind of properties, they're obviously um, – there's a level of scrutiny that is added to that process when in terms of regulations, what they can do, what they cannot do, and sometimes making it more of an expensive process. What if somebody doesn't want, want well, that to happen? Just, just take, for example, you own a home that happens to be on the medium to high priority list, <clears throat> and you have someone that says, I'll buy your home, but you got to get rid of the house. Mm. I'll, I'll pay you top dollar for more than you can get for the house as the house. I'll pay you top dollar for it. And you can't sell it. So it does limit. I talked to a, 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 a appraiser here, a, a major appraiser here in this marketplace, and he indicated that it was a taking. And now I know that probably there are rules that says if it's historic and it's taken the right way, then property owners don't have the right to file suit against that. But in effect, it's a taking. I mean, it reduces your rights to use your property as you see fit. So it's a property rights issue. You know, I know that in, in the Kinder Morgan discussion, that was the major one of the major issues that yeah, it's a property some, issue. some of the folks out there were like, look, this is my land. I've owned it for years. And now this foreign entity comes in and takes it over. Well, mm. that's sort of what's happening here. 
And so it's a, there is a parallel. Now, it's not the same, but there is a parallel in terms of concept of taking someone's property, taking a, a stick out of the bundle of rights of that property and saying you can't do what you thought you could do with the property before. What if there's an opt-in or opt-out version, uh, a, a component of well, this to where, you know, these 400 properties are notified, and let's say uh, about 100, 200 of them are like, or maybe less than that, maybe 20, are like, oh, I kind of want to opt out. Is I mean, are, could that potentially be an option? I feel well, like that... that, that, that we're we're going to talk about SB, uh, what is it, 2496 uh-huh. in a minute. <clears throat> or, or it's It was the conference version of the bill that ultimately passed. But, um, you know, I know when... Um, when Cheatham Street was asked, mm. you know, whether they were, they asked Randy Rogers, who's the, one of the new of the owners, and he said no, and so they they didn't put that in an historic structure because he was in the process of doing some construction to it as well. So, I mean, they asked him, and so I think it's a prudent thing to do. Now, uh, if you want to jump to that, and I want to come back to this in a minute, but in the recent legislative session, SB twenty four ninety six was passed that was filed. Uh, in the in the in its language, to require each property that was being considered for designation as an historic landmark by a city, it would require the approval of the property owner mm. before it could be made <clears throat> a landmark. Now, mm-hmm. in conference committee, the bill was amended to include a provision that the properties could be included against the property owner's objection. However, only if it required a seventy-five percent approval by the planning, zoning, or historic commission, or other municipal regulatory body, which would be the city council, um, that would be six votes in the council to approve um, inclusion of a particular property that the owner objected to. So, um, and I would I would strongly recommend that these votes be the city council votes, not votes from the Historic Preservation Commission or the Planning Commission. These those are appointed bodies, and this is when you're when you're when you're messing with somebody's property. Uh, and the values of their property, these need to be the elected officials. They, they need to be an unvarnished position to um, feel the brunt of whatever this decision is that they're making and the vote that they're taking. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that deals with that issue. And so, yes, I, th- I think that um, the, the legislature saw fit that there be a prudent question to the property owner, do you or do you not want to be included as a landmark? Yeah, because, so, because it's a – because there are property right related issues that come with being a historic landmark. You could argue or, or just throwing a particular property with a designation. Well, and, and there's some properties on this list, and, and I can I know of one in particular that's been vacant for, you know, a generation or more. Uh, it's dilapidated. It's falling apart. Um, and, and that particular property probably would be easily – take it down and start over. Which property? Um, it's uh, – I don't know uh, the streets. I, that, that they're talking about Lindsay Hill. No, 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 no. That's these are these are. This is one little house mm-hmm. that's in a spot. But but that's <clears throat> that's just an example. Yeah, uh, an anecdotal example of something that's that's there. That you know, the the even the even the consultants admitted they went around with our historic commission members and, and other people that that were involved and interested to be involved in the process, and people. Signed up for, hey, that's historic, and this is the reason why. So it was really more an information gathering process than a research project mm. by the consultants. Mm. So, uh, you know, we can say, well, they're world renowned consultants. Well, they really even admitted it. It wasn't, they're not determining whether something's significant on their, on their own. It has to do with gathering the information, working with the public, talking to them about it. So I know that a large number of the people that were involved in this process were. Motivated to make sure that more things were historic than not, and this is really on the heels of the demolition of the San Marcos Telephone Company building. Well, in San Antonio. but this is uh, let me let me go back a little bit further than that. Um, I think that that you know it's been it's been some time since we've had a citywide uh, historic evaluation. But mm. in my opinion, the genesis of this study was to provide evidence. Uh, against the demolition of structures on the old Lamar School site that has been under development approval as the Lindsay Hill Project on the, on Hutchison Street and more. Um, I, I think that, you know, they included that project, you know, they slipped it into phase one to be included, and um, it was done to make sure that that project, it was another nail in the coffin for that project in that respect. So I think there were real motivations here by members of the Historic Preservation Commission and of that community to get this done and to include that as a, uh, 
I think that's designated a high-priority property. Mm. Now, uh, that said, uh, we they they have filed um, a demolition permit for all those buildings. And I think they also submitted a letter that said that's not what they're really doing. They're just vesting their rights to do it. So uh, it makes perfect sense that they have the option, not the obligation. Uh, it provides maybe a leverage point, if you will, with the city. Uh, if they, you know, if people are so adamant about saving per- certain parts of that that building, those building structures over there, uh, it may make sense. But um, you know, the other the other part that that concerns me is that in the process of increasing the regulatory um, authority of the Historic Preservation Commission, uh, it's my opinion this document will also I, I call it the divining rod for to allow the Historic Preservation Commission to, in effect, be the gatekeeper of development in the community, which, to me, that's the wrong group to be the gatekeeper. Wait, so gatekeeper, if if this survey outlines particular areas you, where you can't... You have 400-plus properties, and you say you can't develop that, you can't tear it down, you got to leave it there. But, well, there, but uh, could you argue that there are plenty of other properties around town that, sure that leave vacancies sure. to, to, to have development? Yeah, there, there would be. But there, there are a lot of properties, particularly in the core of our city, mm. That have that potentially could have something that might be considered uh, a critical historic structure. I think the Comet Cleaners Quonset Hut is considered an historic structure. And we're like, really? Okay, you know, fine. Uh, well, may, there, there's a lot of buildings uh, in the square in the in the immediate surrounding areas for sure in our downtown. Yeah, and and some of them are you know they're they need to be torn down. Hmm. So. Um, or, you know, they need to be used as long as they can be used and then torn down. But yeah. And I have to admit, I own several of the properties that are 120, 130 years old downtown on the square. And they have been so many different things in their lives. It's amazing. Are they considered historic right now? They're, well, they're now on the National Historic Register, yes. Oh, okay. And, and I, I maintain, I send maintenance crews out there all the time to redo windows, call conceal the windows and repaint them. Make sure that the building is in is, is in as good a shape as it can continue to be over time, um, because I understand you know I appreciate the value of historic structures as well, and those are cool reminders of how organic development growth occurred in our city a without, long time ago. without a bunch of uh, you know smart codes and things like that. It happened that way, yeah. And over time, we codified land development rules that um, wouldn't even allow us to do it that way. You know what's really funny. Is that in like seventy years the local will be considered a historic building? Sure, you know, sure well, yeah, yeah, and it's be. like yeah, it's like all, all like all buildings at some point will become historic. Well, and it's interesting. Uh, there'll be an argument on, on the other side. Well, some some even though they're old aren't historic. Mm-hmm. But you know, you look at that, and you can you can darn well tell that that building wasn't built in the eighteen hundreds. The local. Right. Oh, you know, yeah, of course. Was, yeah. It's, it's a building that has the stamp of today yes, on it. it. Yeah, it does. Not, not 100 years ago. And, and I think that's where I have some disagreement with some of the historic historians, not the historic circles, the historians about this, is that they, uh, they want to have everything back like it was built then. And I want to say, look, if someone comes here in, in a thousand years and looks at the buildings that are here and they look and go, wow. Was there no one here for the hundred years between 1880 and, and uh, 1980 or whatever? Because there's nothing. There's no building that has any timestamp that looks anything different than those old buildings. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we owe it to ourselves for our generations to put our timestamp on the buildings that we build and have some sense of uniqueness to buildings that are built in our our lifetime versus buildings that have were were here well before our lifetimes began. So. Anyway, we're jumping around here a bit, but no, that's okay. Um, um, yeah, and it's so yeah when you when you look at what buildings will be considered historic or not in the future. I mean, a lot of big cities these, um, and in fact, a lot of historic buildings are being uh, transformed. A lot of old factory buildings are being transformed to yeah. mixed use uh, to mixed use de- developments. Uh, uh, more specifically, still paying homage to what it looked like a hundred hundred fifty years well, ago. Well, but it's interesting. You know, you take that example, and I'm going to take it back to a housing example here in the city. Hmm. You take an example of a factory that has been changed into either a residential uh, com- complex or um, an office, an innovation 
uh, office complex. Yeah. So they took the existing structure and they changed the insides to accommodate the needs of today. Yeah, yeah, you're okay. right. So now the outside's still the same. The inside's just. Let's take the example of what happened on Hopkins Street, right behind Twin Twin Liquors. Those two applications, the exterior of those buildings, those homes, were going to look exactly the same. Mm. But the interior was going to be changed to accommodate additional living units. And and we denied the opportunity for, to do that. So I agree with you. You can take an existing historic building and you can take the insides of it and you can change it around and make it existing or today's uses in an historic building and make those work. Yeah. But we, we, we denied we, – we snatched defeat from the jaws of victory on that one again. Now, there were several other items that came up, and obviously the one that caused the emergency meeting for council to, to kick all this, this dust up about this was when the San Marcos Telephone Company building on San Antonio began to be demolished – which is very controversial. Well, um, it, it was it was included. The demolition permit, as required, was was included as part of the site permit. So there was nothing nefarious, nothing wrong done by the multifamily home builder, not the developer, the multifamily home builder in that developer, location. Developer. No, I'm, well, let me use my own terms to call it the multifamily home builder in that location. Nothing was done out of the ordinary. They did it in accordance with our rules and regulations. And they they were allowed to tear that building down. So, um, but that flipped the switch to a lot of people mm -hmm. to say, well, we've got to we've got to protect these buildings, even though it's out there for years, empty, and and uh, in falling into atrophy. But so there was a discussion regarding a demolition review process for historic age structures, and. Um, so that was the big one. That's the stuff that they're they're working on now to come up. And I think the meeting lasted for several hours in the yeah. process. I was sort of amazed, and I I'm, I'm, can't wait to get to listen to it all. Just kidding. But um, the other one, a couple of other items that came up was um, the most noticeable, to me at least, was the proposal by the Historic Commission, Historic Preservation Commission, to establish an Office of Historic Preservation as a standalone department in the city. So um, – you know, more administration, more costs. Um, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it yet. Uh, I'm, I'll do a little bit more search and and remain open minded about it. But that just seemed to be a little bit uh, over the top that we have a whole new wing in our our city called the um, Office of Historic Preservation. And uh, these demolition permits, from my understanding, are public record. Um, right. I mean, it's a tragedy to see the building go. Obviously, it. it uh, generations of families have you know worked in that building when it was not empty for however many decades it was. Well, but and, and it's interesting that the, the 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 reality of those generations of families working in that building won't go away when the building's gone. No, but um, well, yeah. What I'm saying is that like the you know the demolition obviously prompted this process, but. All of that information is public record. I mean, the the building could have been saved 20, 30 years ago um, if, you know, it could have been bought out by somebody so this wouldn't happen. But, yeah, in, in terms of, of of how this happened, I mean, the process followed the city the city's regulations for it to happen. Is it yes. unfortunate to see it go? Yeah, it is. But, we, but the city could have done something about it. The citizens could have done something about it 10, 15, 20 years ago. Well, the, the citizens could have made, made this an agenda item on the council's priorities to go fix that this happened. I mean, it, it, it is interesting. You, you sort, sort of make the point, and the exaggeration to make a point is the buildings have been there a hundred years, mm. and we have to have an emergency meeting to go make sure they don't get taken away. So it was the malice, malice of forethought or, or lack of forethought here that said this may happen or this this this. And, Could you know, happen, thing, yeah. Things happen in public policy that you know you think well this is for good reason, and all of a sudden the outcomes don't quite match what. Um, uh, the the, um, the the angry horde wants to see done differently, and so that's po how public policy gets changed. Yeah, moving on. Uh, <clears throat> good time to talk about H uh, SB twenty four ninety six. Well, we talked um, about it. We we talked about the fact that that was the one that says if a, if a property is going to be made an historic landmark by the city, it has to have it has to, it has to get the first first door you have to knock on is the homeowner or the property owner and say, yeah, are you okay with it? If the answer is no. And it has to go before the threshold vote of 75% of some of one of our boards or commissions, which includes the city council. And my, recommend, my recommendation would be six votes of our council to make that happen. Now, um, <laughs> I'm interested to see how this is implemented, though. Well, my, my big concern is that 
a, a lot of our properties, and people complain about this, a lot of our properties are not owned by individuals living in the city who may not subscribe to the San Marcos Daily Record, may not, uh, there's not really a news newscast, yeah. may, with the exception of ours, that covers this kind of stuff. So it's difficult for them to find a news source to go to. So they may not ever hear about it. I mean, the agendas of the Historic Commission and the City Council are, you know, out of sight, out of mind for these individuals. And so, but the fact is that people that own property deserve the right to participate in the process and be notified that it's happening. Mm. And so I know, as I said earlier, when we have a zoning case, I mean, we do everything but but to set off the the tornado warnings to make sure that people understand a zoning case is coming. We put signs on the property. <coughs> we mail out notifications. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, that hasn't happened. Yeah. And, and, and it, ha- it, ha- it may happen by the time it gets to city council. Mm-hmm. But the recommendations in the documents that are going to be considered to city council are being created in a vacuum, as far as I'm concerned, without these property owners being notified. Because yeah. it's going to be whoever knows about it, whoever knows about the agenda at the Historic Preservation Commission. Those are not typically well-attended meetings. It's a small group of folks, and it'll be crafted, and it will come out um, you know, as a, as a product by people who don't own a lot of these kind of properties. And so they're going to be making decisions to, or recommendations to council based upon what they think versus what they should know from the experienced landowner or property owner. Yeah, and to go back, I mean, over a thousand properties surveyed, four hundred were determined to be the medium to high priority as historic structures. That is a lot. Four hundred is a lot. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the process is for that. I mean, if if these property owners can contest that, whether they're homeowners or people who own commercial, um, and, and what that process will be like going forward, if they can say, "Hey, I don't want to. I want to opt out. I, I, this is not something I want to be able to do." And how much? I mean, how much could the, how much power could the city just say? Well, no, it has to happen. I'm really interested to see how that all plays out. I, I'm, I am too, and I know that um, given the fact that we've had certain votes on zoning changes and the impact that um, the um, the drumbeat of the usual suspects, as I call them, has had, um, that has that have resulted in motions to deny coming out before motions to consider for discussion purposes only. Mm. I mean, there are motions made to deny with a clamor of planning and zoning commissioners, you know, trying to get there to, to be the one to make the second to the motion to deny. And so that's why I've, I've labeled the planning and zoning commission, the housing denial commission. So we have an HPC and we have an HDC, which is the housing denial commission, which was formerly known as the planning and zoning commission because they continued to deny opportunities for housing. And so it's, um, you know, it's it's an interesting process, but um, I think that this council leans toward that uh, mindset, which is preserve it, not don't let it grow, preserve it. Um, Yeah, but but, but there could be some, I mean, there's some, there, there could be potentially some serious Challenges in terms of uh, property owner sure. property owner rights with sure. that. Well, and, and I, I've, I've brought up the issue before is that uh, I, this is the tip of the iceberg, the, the report itself. It's not just the 400 properties. They're going to be looking to designate entire areas of the city uh, as mm-hmm. historic districts. Right. And once they do that, then you have an overlay of that entire district. And so if you want to change a window, you want to, you know um, – do anything to your porch, you want to add a lean-to, all that has to go back to the planning to the Historic Preservation Commission. And I don't I don't even know, and I have to, I'll have to go back and do the research, I don't think there's an appeal from the HPC to council or anything else. Mm. <clears throat> so just like there, there is an appeal for a CUP, conditional use permit, from the Planning and Zoning Commission to council, um, I don't think there's an appeal. So you let's just paint the picture of having – a, a long-time um, minority family home that's been owned multi-generationally over the years. And it started out with sash windows that are shaky windows that leak like a sieve and the wind blows right through the, the house. And they're going to go, we want to go change our windows to double-pane insulated glass. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so uh, we're going to save – we're going to make our money back on these expensive windows, 
by the energy savings that we're going to have. Well, they find out that so before they can take the old ones out and put the new ones in, they got to go to the Historic Preservation Commission. So uh, a, a, a family whose culture is not necessarily driven by going through this type of administrative process has to go to, and I'll refer to it as a tribunal of seven members of an historic commission who some have been, and I've experienced this myself personally in the past, some have been what I call originalists. If it had a sash window in it when it was built, by God, it's, it should have a sash window in it when it's when it's repaired. Mm. Well, sash windows in those type of homes are custom-made windows now. They don't make them because they're not efficient. They're not really. They're not. They're not the kind of window that you go replace. So this family, who's probably struggling from economic hardship to begin with, is now going to have to go back and ask a tribunal of seven individuals who who live in some of the richest, the most expensive homes in the city permission to put a new window in their home and they're going to be they could well be told and i'm not saying they will be but they could well be told no yeah and that's what i mean with these 400 properties who it's not just uh, that are considered medium to high priority but but see it's not just the it's not just those this could be entire neighborhoods that this report has talked about going in and drawing a circle around and saying that needs to be an historic district yeah. So then it's any home in that district. And it depends on, depends on where they draw the circle. Those might not be homes of high socioeconomic income family family the, members. Once again, the, the, the discussion that was had in the beginning was why did you not do any of the study east of 35, only west of 35? Mm. And to me, once again, it took on a very elitist tone to it. But this report is, you know, historic, really truly historic properties are only those of, of significant value. Yeah. Well, if you if you think about the the culture of our city, that's much more represented on the east side of, of 35 than maybe the west side. Yeah. So uh, I think there was valid points there. I understand that, you know, you got to start somewhere in the report. So I get that. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the request was made by Mayor Houston to speed this process along in the month of July while they're they're in and they're on their quote, quote unquote vacation. Um, but unfortunately, the information that the Historic Preservation Commission is gathering, the individuals that they're hearing from or the, the propensity of the individuals they're hearing from, were not property owners notified in this process. So there's a large number of, of folks out there who are clueless about this potential negative impact on their property value as a result of the study. Yeah. All right. A lot of things going on uh, in terms of historic preservation with the Historic Preservation Commission, City Council. I get, no, up in I, the, I get up in the morning and shave and things. I feel like I'm doing historic preservation myself on me. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you, you should grow out the beard, Scott. No, 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 no. No? No. Every morning. It's a regimen. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I need to shave. I'm looking scraggly. I got I to gotta look good for work tomorrow. So thanks for reminding me. I'll do that tonight. Um, coming up, though, 2019, 2020 are going to be huge election years. But campaigns, uh, Councilmember Lisa Pruitt has, has uh, I believe she said at, uh, it was a recent... Um, Hayes County Hayes County Women's uh, Caucus uh, Yeah, Political Caucus uh, said that that, that she'd be running uh, as a Democrat for County Commissioner for Precinct 3 against incumbent Lon Show, who's a Republican Um, and and this will be a very interesting election. If it's it's a secret, it's not very well kept (laughs) She's I thought she announced it though. Well, I don't think she's formally announced it. I think she's had some questions about that later. Okay. Oh, no, no I'm I'm just thinking about it because I'm I'm not sure what I want to do. I'm only going to spend more time with my family. Well, you know, my, my bet is that, you know, all bets are on. She's going to run for, for Lon Shell's, for the Republican incumbent, uh, Lon Shell, uh, for that precinct three. And I think he took the spot from Will Conley when he resigned to run for yes. county judge. Yes, he did, yeah. Uh, but, you know, to me, just personally, partisan politics in the county don't really impact our county government. I don't, I don't really sense a lot of partisan issues like we have in Washington uh, or even in the state. So I, I'm— yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's always an, to, argue for, an argument for that. And, and I'll be clear. I mean, I'm, I'm a registered Democrat, uh, but I have voted on for others on the Republican ticket, particularly not na- not necessarily nationally, but definitely in the local county and local elections when, when there are partisan uh, designations to candidates. 
Because it's the person, not the not the office. It just doesn't really, to me, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, and that won't change because I believe that the legislature has mandated that. I mean, I believe it's in the Texas Constitution that they have. I mean, you look at like county clerk, for example, right? It's like, why is it like, why? Right. Or, or justice of, uh, I believe justice of the peace too. Right. Um, our DA, like, why is that partisan? It, right. it, 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 it never, it never made sense but, to me. Well, because the people making the laws are partisan. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. I, I just don't feel like it reflects 2019, and, the sentiments of local politics in 2019, and, personally. And, and, and on the basis of that, you know, once you have an open seat on city council, there's a rush to fill that gap. Now, yeah, uh, I know uh, one of our, our current planning, com- planning and zoning commissioners, our housing denial commission member, Max Fieldbaker, um, He's he came out. Um, there were several posts that I had posted, and he was responding back to. Um, and his response was very political sounding, like he was you know, trying to tell everyone that they were right. And and how do you say that in the word? It's just difficult to do, uh, and, and it doesn't work. Ultimately, you've got to come down on one side of an issue or the other, typically. But um, so he was called out about it, and so he made the comment that finally that yes, I'm I'm planning to file for. Uh, Lisa uh, Councilmember Pruitt's seat. So he's made an announcement on Facebook that he intends to file for that location, that seat. I believe Mark Gleason, the vice chair of the same commission, um, the Housing Denial Commission, has indicated his interest in making a second run for city council. He ran the couple, last year or in, in 2018, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's looking to run for Ms. Pruitt's seat. The other seat that's up is um, Commissioner um, Saul Gonzalez's right? Saul, Saul yeah. seat. So there's two. And, and I have not heard of anybody planning to run against um, um, Councilmember Gonzalez, but my bet is there will be some. I mean, I think that um, there will be a cadre of folks who are running for Ms. Pruitt's seat. Every 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 seat should be contested. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone should just walk in and have it have it given to them. There's they need they need to go to the they need to be forced to go to the debates. They need to be forced to stand up and be accountable. It's an opportunity for us to have a conversation with our potential or incumbent council members in this process. You know, there's a lot of stuff. You know, we get we send them a letter, we talk to them, but you don't really get to have that kind of issue based conversations. Mm. And that's what an election does. It allows. It almost creates that. Uh, the bar ditches of the of the of the road to keep keep them between because they have to answer the questions. Well, uh, and in terms of of uh, Ms. Pruitt's seat, I, I anticipate there's going to be more than just you know potentially Maxfield Baker and Mark Gleason when they do. Oh, I guess there'll be five or six. Yeah, oh yeah, for more. sure, but more or more. I mean, there were, or, or there at least five that ran for the mayor, I think. Yeah, or at least mm-hmm. five or six between. Um, them and Councilmember Gonzalez's spot. I'm not sure if Councilmember Gonzalez has announced that he's going to run again. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he I will. I haven't heard that he isn't, so that that leads me to the conclusion that he that is. he probably is, right. right. So we're going to have two elections coming up. I, I believe during this cycle it would have only had been one, but Ms. Pruitt, like her seat wasn't up in 2019. No, hers was. Oh, hers was. Her, okay, hers so was, no yeah. matter what, we're going to have two. Yeah. Okay. And so I, and I, I think also what, what I believe what we'll have on the ballot will be the state constitutional amendments. Now, yeah. the, the interesting thing about this, and I want to go back in, in history a little bit because we're talking history in the show today. Um, off year and on your elections, this election will be a small voter turnout election. Oh, yeah. It's off now, year. And, and this, was, this was the effort that was being proposed initially by Mayor Houston to have a charter change, to have a charter – um, not to use the charter commission, but just to do a, a council directed put on the ballot. We we would have had that on the ballot uh, had there not been such um, a, a hue and cry against it. Uh, but it would have been this year's election that would have dictated every one of our council members. Yeah, and the, the turnout and in, in for this uh, election kind of whenever will be a lot lower than what we're going to see in 2020 and, and what I, we saw in 2016, and and you know the. Uh, even your elections that we've seen before. And I can tell you the the turnout, the term I use is abysmal in terms of the number of voters that vote in our off-year election. So we would have had, and I, I don't mean to rehash the issue, but I'm going to for just one second. We would have had the small number of voters dictate what the direction of the entire city was. So uh, fortunately, those elections, we split those between off and on-year elections. But the way we have our elections in this city is we vote for a council member, a couple of council members, and or the mayor every year. 
campaign's coming up. It'll be an interesting campaign season, constitutional amendments as well as uh, elections. And then, of course, 2020 will probably be one of the one of the craziest elections be, because of the national sentiment. Well, and it, what's it, going on at the border, uh, President Trump and all of his controversy, et cetera, et cetera. And it's interesting, though, you know, because that election will have such um, um, bandwidth involved with it. Yeah. You know, it's it's going to stretch over and, and push out a lot of the conversation we're having about our local stuff. So it's important um, for folks to stay tuned, uh, stay engaged, um, you know, pick up a copy of – go to the website and just – Look at the city council agenda. Look at the planning and zoning commission agenda. Look at the historic commission. Look at look at the agendas of boards and commissions that have an impact, and just look at them and see if there's something of merit that you need to participate with. I just think it's uh, uh, particularly business owners that own property that are impacted by the city's actions. It's important that you know. I, I had a conversation once when. We were talking about uh, one-way, two-way downtown, and one of the business owners said, you know, no one's ever mentioned this to me, and blah, blah, blah. I said, I said we changed the street in front of your building to two-way for a, a weekend to do it. We've had meeting after meeting in Charette and conversation, whatever the Charettes are, conversations, uh, endless staff time. We've had all this stuff, and it's, it's not the city's duty or responsibility um, to come and grab you by the neck and shake you up and say, something's happening. Now, I say that, and I, I'm going to, Go back and reiterate that there needs to be notification for property owners for land use changes that impact the value of their property to, in, a, in a negative way, particularly. Uh, and that's what that's I, wonder, what, I wonder. If we'll see that. Well, I would hope so. I know. We'll, I know. Probably we'll see it at council when it finally gets there. I'm guessing they'll have to do that. But I would just. I know when I was on the council, when we talked about parking or, or paid parking. Uh, I know that a couple of council members, Ms. Pruitt was one of them. I mean, she would ask incessantly about, well, did we ask, did we find everybody? Did we go to, did we go door to door? Yeah, did I've, we, seen, I've did, seen her do that did a lot, we, yeah. Did we make those conversations? Did, right. we, did we know what they really want? Yeah. Well, this is a prime example of, well, it's just a property owner. Who cares? Well, you know, it matters if it's a parking issue or if it's a property owner. They have status that needs to be deferred to in this, in my opinion, deferred to in this, this situation, and they need to be notified in a, by either a certified registered letter, some type of way, because, you know, if, if it, if it just goes to a box and it sits there and it doesn't ever get read, you know, you know, we made the attempt, I get it, but, you know, we need to make sure that, uh, send a registered letter, certified, you know, return mail requested, that type of thing. So we know who didn't hear and we find ways to get to them too. If that's what we're going to do for everybody downtown to be make sure they have an input in the parking issue, we need to make sure this is the case when we're dealing with property owners across the entire city. Yeah. All right. That pretty much wraps up for the agenda for this week. We uh, have one more item. You oh, that's that right. We, yeah. We're going to talk about uh, the candlelight vigil. I'm sorry. That happened right. on Friday. Um, so it was hosted by Mano Amiga, our local immigration and criminal justice reform activist group. Um, and we had a, a bunch of clergy member, uh, members of the clergy of, of churches from around the area come out. And we also had a lot of community members and of course, members of Mono Amiga and some elected officials too that went out there. Um, and uh, I guess you can call it a protest. I, I know I said this at the beginning of the show, but you know, really it was a, a, a group of people who came together at the foots of our um, courthouse here on the square at, you know, at uh, sunset and lit candles and uh, they prayed, they read scripture and uh, they also, you know, there was also a lot of discussion on what we can do to um, address what's going on at these detention centers. So, and a lot of them are across Texas where we're seeing uh, families separated, people put in cages. Um, you know, it, it has been a national issue. Some people have uh, equated what's going on at the border to concentration camps. Um, you know, there's just a, a lot of national discussion and this stuff is happening in our backyard. I want our viewers to understand that, that, you know, the Pearsall detention center, the, the Don Hooter residential center. I mean, those are, both of them are within a hundred miles. Um, that's close. That's really, really close. You know, the pier, I mean, we, you have reporters from across the world that are here right now within a hundred miles going to this. And there, there was a lot of call, um, you know, on Friday night uh, to let people know, look, these, this is not, you know, there are people who are protesting this kind of stuff in Washington and Wyoming and in New York and in New Jersey, that, but it's not happening in their backyard. I mean, this is literally happening in, in our backyard here in Texas. 
So it, it, it was a really, really powerful demonstrations. Uh, um, I mean, we had people singing songs like Amazing Grace. Um, everyone had a candle once the sun went down and they all lit candles and they joined hand in hand, um, you know, read some scripture and, and, and really justified scripture as a means to say we need to be treating people from no matter where they come from the same. Um, but yeah, if, if you want to uh, stay involved with that process, reach out to Mono Amiga on Facebook. Uh, they have gone to Pearsall and other places to see what's going on. But, um, you know, really... Uh, Will these kind of will these kinds of of demonstrations stop? No, uh, you know the candlelight vigil was hosted by hundreds of communities across the United States. I mean, this it wasn't just Hayes County here in San Marcos where this happened on Friday. This happened on Friday on June twelfth across the country. So the hope is to keep putting that kind of pressure on elected officials to keep putting that kind of pressure on these facilities to have people go out there. And uh, you know, to me, the main message was look. This is happening in our backyard. There's no excuse for people, if you so choose to protest, to go out to these to these places and have organized demonstrations in order to show in order to to show your dissent um, to what's going on. Um, you know, if if you if you feel that what's going on at the border is is not good enough, and that we're better than that, and then there are means for for you to go there. And I think that that was the main gist of the of the event was to say, if this is something that you believe in. You can go. It's very close. Well, it's uh, what we have on the border now is humanitarian crisis. We, mm. we understand that. What we've had previously, the, the Border Patrol really f- basically picked up um, South American men crossing the border to go to work. Now the whole dynamic has shifted to being individuals who are literally fleeing from uh, a catastrophe in their own country, yeah, and to try to get away from it, uh, hum, you know, the humanitarian crisis in their own country, and what we're dealing with because that's the that's the wall, if you will, or the the stopping point. Um, it is a humanitarian crisis because it involves children and families and things. So I get that, and yeah. uh, and, and I, I do have a little bit of compassion to the folks in the field. Now, the the one one place, I mean, they just sound like they were it was horrible. But there was some compassion in the folks in the field who were who were working under a government budget. So they've got a limit that's dictated by somebody that's way outside of their control. They're doing the best they can with what they've got. So we have an issue there, and we need to fix it. It needs to be done from the top down. Uh, there needs to be leadership in Washington, uh, which is almost an oxymoron. Um, but leadership in Washington to fund it and to fix it, uh, to, to deal with the, the way, either change the laws or, or – administer the laws that are on our books today and make sure we do do it in a humane way. Yeah, and in terms of the countries that these people are from, I mean, I've been to, to two of these countries. I've been to Guatemala and Nicaragua. Uh, beautiful countries, but they have a lot of problems. And and when you go there, when I was there, I could clearly see a lot of those problems. You can't speak out against the government. There's no free press. Now, some of these countries are very dangerous. Very dangerous, citizens. yeah. A lot of crime, uh, a lot of corruption. Um, and, and, a lot of, and a lot of gangs. A lot of gangs and things yeah. like that that basically say if you don't you know toe the line for us, then... Yeah. You know, we're going to kill you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these are dangerous countries. and I'd leave. Yeah, no. I, I mean, I, I yeah. I mean, put that in your shoes. I mean, would you leave? What, what if I had, sure. if it was me and uh, my girlfriend living in a, in a hard situation, would I leave? I mean, that is a very logical question people should ask themselves is if you put yourself in the situation, would you leave? It, it is, is it at the fault of, you know, yourself that, that you're literally born into a system that you can't help, right? It, it's not your fault. Right. Um, so, I mean, what's going on, and particularly in Central America, um, is tough. You know, those governments, a lot of them are, are dictators. They are. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say it straight. Those those governments are, are very corrupt. Um, those leaders have been in power for a very long time. They don't leave power, um, and that's an issue. And right. and those people are suffering because of that they, issue. They, they do what it takes to keep it. Right, yeah. They do whatever it takes to keep it. And right. if that means staying in power to, you know, at, at the— at the hands of, of the of, of the good of the people, and then so be it. You know that's exactly what's happening. So you know, well, it, of, it was it was nice that that the, our community came together and brought attention to the issue. Yes, um, and uh, made made more people aware that uh, it exists. And I think that um, it is an issue that hopefully, with enough uh, support from across the country, uh, and folks that aren't representing people on the border, yeah, they hear their own constituents who have concerns as well, and make a change. But but you know particularly in Texas, I, I think the citizens of Texas have, uh, um, um, in some ways, a blessing, if if you will, to to protest this issue because it's literally happening in the state. 
in this state. A lot of it is happening in the state. So, you know, like I said, states like Idaho and Wisconsin and, and other places, I mean, they don't have, this is not happening in their backyard. You know, at least here in Texas, you can say this is happening 60, 70 miles from you. And if, if you feel so adamantly about this issue, you can go fight that. Um, you know, you have that luxury here in Texas to know that this is happening in your state. So but it made for good photos. I got a lot of good photos. It was a really emotional night. It was, it was, it was, uh, it, it was a good time. Well, you know, we've, we've had several major events that, that have been the courthouse steps. I mean, we had the, yeah. the, the funeral for that building. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, was that there? I think so. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that was a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, that pretty much wraps up uh, everything today on the inside scoop. I uh, hope you all enjoyed this week's episode. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. If you're notified when episodes released every single Monday, you can find us on uh, SoundCloud, the Apple Podcast app, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts by searching San Marcos Scoop. If you're on SoundCloud, you can search the Inside Scoop specifically, and our playlist will come up with all of the episodes. Scott, we took a break last week. It's good to be back, yep. and uh, we'll be back next week. <laughs>